What do the books of Luke and Acts teach us about God, Jesus, and the early church? How do these two books relate to each other? And what do they mean for us today? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. My very special guest on the show this time is Michael Bird, who's here to talk about his new IVP America book called A Bird's Eye View of Luke and Acts. Michael is academic dean and lecturer in New Testament at Ridley College in Melbourne in Australia. Michael is an ordained Anglican priest and author of over 30 books on the Bible, theology and history. And Michael joins me now from Melbourne. Hi, Michael. Hey, Brent. Great to be with you and all your listeners. Thank you very much, sir. Now, um, why a bird's eye view? Uh, well, I've got a pretty good last name there, you know, Michael Bird. And uh, it was uh, too... too uh, too tantalizing a temptation to pass on the wordplay. So, yeah, bird's eye view. It's a great title. Is this going to be a series? We could have a bird's eye view of all sorts of things, couldn't we? Yeah, well, um, I've done a bird's eye view of Paul. Uh, yeah. That's, that's another volume with IVP. I'm, I'm hoping maybe sometime down the track to do a bird's eye view of John's gospel. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, hopefully I could do this at a whole new testament at some level, but we'll, uh, we'll have to see what I get time for in um, future years. Make a great podcast series. Uh, now, we're, let's get into the into the questions. Who is Luke? Well, Luke is the evangelist. He's the author of the third gospel and the book of Acts. According to tradition, he's a traveling companion of Paul, the beloved physician, uh, most likely a a Gentile, or maybe you know he was a he was a God fearer or something like that. And he wrote, um, you know, this two-volume work, Luke and Acts, which you know, which I think belong together, and uh, which constitute a whopping twenty-eight percent of the New Testament. I mean, Paul's letters are only twenty-four percent of the New Testament. So Luke and Acts is the biggest subcorpus of uh, the New Testament. Yes, you've already discussed this. Were Luke and Acts written effectively as one book? Are they, in fact, a unity? Well, I think they are. I think they were, um, you know, written. Uh, I think Luke was definitely written with the Book of Acts in mind. So I don't think um, Luke wrote a, the, his gospel, uh, realized it was a bestseller, and thought I better do a, I better do a sequel or something like that. No, I, I think the way Luke has written his gospel, he definitely had the Book of Acts in mind. Uh, that's that's very clear to me. Although we have to say, for most of church history, they were not naturally associated together. Luke was normally situated or, or grouped with the other three Gospels, and Acts was normally located with the uh, the general epistles. So for much of it, it wasn't really till the 20th century, someone thought, hey, we should, we should put Luke and Acts together and have Luke-Acts, you know, rather than keeping them sort of, you know, um, compartmentalized in different little areas. And yeah, I, I think it's a very good exercise to read them together. I would have thought it was obvious from reading them and why it took 2,000 years. I cannot fathom, but anyway, there we go. Is Luke... <laughs> you can't you can't see Michael, folks. He's, yeah. he's pulling his extraordinary faces here. Is Luke an historian or a theologian or a bit of both? Oh, I think he's got to be a bit of both. I mean, the way I think of Luke is like a cross between... Uh, William Ramsey, who was a you know a, an archaeologist, bit of C.S. Lewis, who was a bit of a a bit of a literary genius, uh, but he, he's also you know a theologian. You know maybe we could say a bit of bit of J.I. Packer in there, or you know whoever your favourite theologian happens to be. So I, I think he's a bit he's a bit of all he's a bit of all three. He's a bit of history, a bit of theology, a bit of literary artistry as well. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, historians have often commented on how good his his knowledge of the Roman world is and how accurate he is, in particularly in Acts. Um, how does Luke present Jesus in Luke and Acts? Well, in, in some senses, Luke simply follows the sources, and I, I think Luke is largely relying on Mark. Um, it Maybe it's disputed. Maybe he's relying a little bit on Matthew as well. But what Luke seems to emphasize is Jesus as the prophetic Messiah. So he is he is definitely the Messiah. Luke's very big on that. He's the Messiah. But he also emphasizes, I think a little bit more than the other evangelists do, the prophetic, the prophetic mantle that Jesus wears and carries. And I mean, that becomes really apparent in places like Luke chapter four, you know, where, you know, he, Jesus is the spirit anointed prophet you know, declaring the, the, the end of the exile, the coming new exodus, you know, from, from Isaiah. Uh, that, that gets to emphasized. Uh, but he also is very big on Jesus as, you know, the Lord. In fact, I think one of the key Christological verses is Luke 2.11, where he's called the, uh, the Lord's Messiah, or we might say the Messianic Lord, or, you know, in Peter's speech at Pentecost, you know, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made Lord and Messiah. So I, I think that's a, that's a big aspect of who uh, Jesus is for, for the evangelist Luke. One of the most fascinating parts of your book that I really enjoyed was your presentation of, of salvation in Luke. I wonder, how does Luke understand and present salvation? Yeah, I think for Luke, salvation is very holistic. Uh, it's not just the, uh, the migration of the soul from the body into heavenly bliss. Uh, it, it's it's deliverance from all things. It's it's from you know spiritual oppression, from economic uh, injustice, uh, from from sickness, from all sorts of from sin, uh, from death. Uh, it's it's a very wide ranging uh, term, and the way the Luke uses the key the key verb you know sozo, you know you know to 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 be saved, delivered, or rescued. He applies that in a lot of different ways, all the way through to the philippian jailer who wants to be you know saved from the horrible predicament he finds himself in um all the way through to you know the healing of various supplicants with exorcisms and and miracles and the like so luke's got a very comprehensive view of healing or salvation which which i think it means the church today also needs a very comprehensive view of healings and and what we mean to deliver the entire person body mind spirit and soul you know and this is a day where you know i think post-covid everyone's dealing with a bit of mental health stuff uh, in various ways. And I think the church needs to have a very comprehensive and holistic view of salvation, healing, deliverance, rescue. Is there a salvation culture in Luke and Acts? Oh, definitely. I mean, he wants, he wants to be the church to be the place where people are being saved. And I, th I think the emphasis there is on the being saved. Um, I mean, I know there's an old story about someone asked a, uh, a bishop, a biblical scholar, I think it was B.F. Westcott, uh, is he saved? And he says, I am saved, I am being saved, I will be saved, which I think is a great a great example of what I think Luke believes. He, he does see deliverance in, in, in the purpose and plan of God eternally, executed in Christ, in the giving of the Spirit, and you know, in, the, you know, in coming to faith where we're, our hearts are cleansed from sin, we're renewed, we're filled with the Spirit, we're empowered. I, I think for Luke, uh, salvation is, is a far more complex uh, process that that's an ongoing thing as we're all you know making our own journey into you know with many 
struggles and trials we enter the kingdom of God. And I think that whole journey on the way there is that the the narrow path of salvation. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how does Luke understand the kingdom of God, which is a pretty big theme in his in his books, isn't it? Oh yeah, I mean scholars debate this to like the cows come home, and then they butcher the cow- then they milk them, then they butcher them, and they make soup out of the bones. It's a it's a complex. Um, I've I've always been partial to what Graham Goldsworthy, the biblical Australian biblical scholar, said. You know, mm. the kingdom of God is God's reign over God's people and God's place. I mean, I think that's a you know, a, a good generic thing to carry around with you. Uh, but Luke does emphasise a number of things. He definitely emphasises the kingdom of God coming in Jesus. And, and then in, in the book of Acts, he's very big on how the name of Jesus can be coordinate or, you know, adjacent to the, the kingdom of God. So Paul preaches the name of Jesus and the kingdom of God. So these are, you know, fairly coordinate entities. Uh, I think the kingdom refers to Luke for the saving power of God, which is manifested in, you know, supremely in the purpose, purpose, person of Jesus and then the preaching of the early church. I mean, there used to be a thing, people used to say things like, well, you know, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom and then the church proclaimed Jesus. So they kind of swapped off all the kingdom stuff. Uh, That doesn't work for two reasons. Number one, uh, Jesus himself was very Christocentric in his preaching. He would say, you know, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God is coming through you. So Jesus was very much, so I'm not just uh, announcing the kingdom, I'm the one bringing it, embodying it. So he's the He's the king of that very kingdom. And like I said, in the early church, Jesus and the kingdom of God really went together. So I think that that's an important thing to, to emphasize when we think of the kingdom of God in Luke Acts. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, coming on to the Old Testament and how Luke uses the Old Testament, because this is a, another intriguing part of your book, isn't it? How does Luke use the Old Testament in Luke and Acts? Oh, it's it's saturated everywhere from the, the beginning of the infancy narratives. You're getting, um, uh, you know, echoes or hints. And what, what I think helps if you've got a good little working taxonomy for how the Old Testament appears in the New. And I tend to use the standard breakdown, which you've got, you know, explicit quotations, okay, where it's like, you know, as it says in the words of Isaiah or as it is written, so explicit quotations. Then you've got allusions where you've got some very clear wording. You know, um, like if I was to say to you, um, uh, oh, this is New Zealand, you may not know this, but, you know, life wasn't meant to be easy. You know, that, that's, a, that's a, you know, everyone knows that's a quote from a famous prime minister, you know, so I don't need to say, you know, as Malcolm Fraser said, but, you know, if I said life wasn't meant to be easy, you'd, so that's an illusion. And then you've got an echo, which is a, maybe a fainter, thematic connection but it's a little bit more looser a little bit more tenuous so there's there's various ways in which the old testament makes itself felt or present in uh in luke acts now you can see this very explicitly where jesus quotes the words of isaiah and you know you know when he's he's the one who's going to bring healing to the captives um there's some interesting quotes from isaiah 6 where you know the, the 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 book of acts ends with a quotation of isaiah 6 where, you know, I think Luke is somewhat um, opining the weak Jewish response to Paul's preaching in Rome, where only a few believed, but most didn't. As Isaiah said, they'll be ever seeing, but never understanding, ever, ever, you know, hearing, but never perceiving, you know. So there's that there. But all the way through Luke Acts, you can find these sort of echoes, like, oh, yeah, that that reminds me of Moses on the mountain, or the birth story reminds me of the story of Hannah. Or, you know, there'll be something else. So everywhere you go through Luke Acts, you, you often get these tacit allusions and echoes of the whole Old Testament, which shows the Old Testament is providing very much a substructure, 
But of course, there's also a big promise and fulfillment theme as well. You know, and this is what you know, one of my favorite verses in Acts is where Paul says to the Jews in the in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, he says, What God promised our ancestors is fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. And this is why in apostolic preaching you get all these Psalms being alluded to. Psalm one hundred and ten, you know. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You find references to Psalm 2, you know, you are my son. Today I've, I've begotten thee. You know, Psalm 16, you know, God's not, not going to allow David to stay dead in the pit. You know, Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So, th so the, the whole thing is suffused with references from the Old Testament. Yeah. What, what were some of the Jewish exegetical techniques that New Testament writers use? Because I think modern audiences find this a bit strange, don't they? Yeah. Like, you know, we have our own way of interpreting things. Um, you know, there's somewhat, you know, maybe modernist fashion. We want either authorial intent or various sort of pattern analysis or something like that. But often uh, Jewish authors would do things like they would combine two texts together that shared a couple of same words. Um, I mean, and this is called Midrash, and Midrash is a very broad category, a lot of things. It's like, you know, what we mean by exegesis. I mean, all sorts of things can go under the mantle of exegesis. So that there are these sort of interpretive techniques of bringing things together. Probably the best example I can think of would be in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus has to kind of explain why he's getting a very lukewarm reaction. And he kind of draws on, on two stories from the Old Testament, one about Naaman the, the Syrian uh, and then the, the widow of Zarephath. And he brings them to, together because they represent two outsiders who receive, you know, grace, blessing, healings from a Israelite prophet. And they seem to, it turns out better for, for them than it does for, you know, uh, the, 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 the majority of people to which those, you know, two prophets were addressing their message. So that, that's a very Jewish way of, you know, of, of bringing texts together, if you like. What's Luke's view of discipleship? Uh, I think Luke would say it's hard yakka, okay? <laughs> um, there's a difference between... If he was a good a Australian, he would say it was hard yakka, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if he was Australian, he'd say it's hard yakka in the um, Aussie standard version. Now, I think, I think Luke would say Jesus does make strenuous demands. And the place where I think you see that above all, well, you see it in many places, but above all in Luke chapter 9, the end of Luke 9, where one chap says, hey, look, Jesus, I totally want to come follow you. And he says, yeah, um, you know, sure. And, but then the guy says, I just need to go bury my parents. And Jesus says, well, no, then there's no looking back. You know, that's the time. The time is dire. There's an emergency uh, or someone wants to, you know, go do some other things. And he, he won't. And these are the... You know, you'd think these would be basic courtesies you allow someone to do, but the, the nature of the urgency at the time is Jesus said, no, you, it's, it's, it's an absolute decision you have to make. You've got to, you've got to go all in. It's all or nothing. Uh, you can't be, you know, three quarters, two thirds in. It's, you know, you've, you've got to go the, the, you've got to go the full Monty. You've got to go the distance uh, with this. And it, and it requires sacrifice. It re requires reorientate, reorientating your values rethinking about what you do with wealth and riches. I mean, that's a very big theme. Um, if you really want to know what uh, the theme about discipleship, there's a lot in it uh, about about money, wealth, and, and how, how you use your finances is a, is, a, is a big indicator of where your loyalties are. Mm, well, let's come on to that. That leads very nicely to my next question. 
Luke's view of possessions and property. What is Luke's view of possessions and property? Thinking of those passages in Acts, which have some folks scratching their heads. Yeah, well, I mean... You can get all sorts of views from looking at Luke Acts. I mean, some people regard, you know, Luke as a, you know, as kind of like a proto-communist, you know, in, in the in the book of Acts, chapter 2, where they, they shared all their possessions together and there was no poor among them. But, I mean, I, th- I think it's a bit more complex than that. You get some people um, are called to give up their possessions, like the rich young ruler, and I think that's because his possessions were holding him back. Uh, but the one thing you can say about wealth and riches in Luke Acts, they are a snare. They are something that can be very easily um, target your heart, pull your heart in the wrong direction. They can they can become an idol. They can become something that will will weigh you down and lead you to be condemned on the, the day of judgment. So they they are they are things that can go very bad for you. Uh, at the same time, people are not condemned merely for the fact of having riches or wealth. There is a sense it's what you do with them. And some people are called to do extraordinary things with them, such as the, the early church in, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, other people like Zacchaeus, he, he famously makes a, a very, very generous restitution based on certain bad, ne- negligent or deceitful or predatory things he's done in the past. Some people leave all their possessions behind to come follow Jesus. And then you get others like a, a group of women who support Jesus. You read, read, read the opening of Luke chapter 8. You get women supporting Jesus out of their possessions. They're not expected to sell everything and and, and hit the road with Jesus. Rather, they, they remain where they are, but they, they provide for Jesus in his his own um ministry and needs, you know, out of their out of their resources, out of their abundance. So it's it's a complex picture. But I think Luke would say, you know, you, you should you, you should think of wealth and riches as something useful, but potentially toxic. Mm. Luke's view of the Roman Empire. Let's come on. And we've got a few minutes left. I think I'm not really counting the time. It's, uh, we've got about seven minutes or so. What's Luke's view of the Roman Empire? And because this is this fascinated me, this part of your book. And how does he present Rome and its officials? Yeah, I mean, this is this is interesting. I mean, there's there's been a big trend in the last 20 years to find anti-empire everywhere. So Paul was all about anti-empire. Hebrews is about all anti-empire. Mark is all anti-empire. And a little bit of this, I think, is true. But, you know, you've got to, ha- you've got to take a balanced approach. Because, I mean, if you look at the way Luke portrays the death of Jesus, he, he, he kind of wants to say... Well, Pilate thinks Jesus was innocent and Pilate was just going along with the chief priest. And it's really the chief priest who we should blame. Um, he kind of, he's not fully, but I think he does want to exonerate Pontius Pilate a little bit. Or at least say, okay, Pilate was the tool. Or he was the tool or the fool. Um, he wasn't the main instigator. So he kind of wants to put more of the blame on the Judean leaders than he does on the Romans. Uh, but in other cases, you you get a, you get a mixed picture. Some some Roman officials are you know quite horrible, you know, and the things they want to do they're they're corrupt, um, they're unjust, and and this is this is ironic because the Christians may well have been considered a disruption, uh, a threat to the peace, order, and justice of Roman society. And I think Luke is saying, well, I'll be honest with you, from our perspective, Roman justice really ain't that just. You know, from from you know, from the perspective of the have-nots. Uh, so I think he he does provide a, a complex picture of it. You do get some real nasty uh, or 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 you know, corrupt or indifferent. Like you know, one 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 uh, procurator of Judea try. You know, I think it's Felix. You know, tries to get a bribe out of Paul. You know, you know that that type of a thing. 
And it would never have happened. I'm sure it would never have happened in the Roman world, brother. Never. No. Bribery never, yeah. No. <laughs> uh, you know, Gallio basically allows some Jews to be beaten in front of him and he does nothing. It's like, this is a Jewish problem. Uh, it's nothing to do with me. Yeah. But then you get, you know, Paul has a very positive relationship with a centurion on the way back. Mm. And that they develop, basically, they, they develop their own little partnership to save the crew and, you know, save everyone's lives. So maybe that's parabolic, you know, um, that Luke thinks, well, maybe, you know, we can work within the roman empire or, or something like that or with civic officials so but but there is an interesting scene in in when paul and his team arrive in thessalonica and the people say well you know this this group of people have are proclaiming that there is a king other than caesar and they have been turning the world upside down and i i think i think that does sum up that luke luke is not interested in a direct confrontation i mean he's he's not walking around you know rome saying slave life matter or you know end the roman <laughs> occupation of palestine or anything like that but i i think he, he does believe that there is something potentially good but mostly malevolent about the roman empire and he doesn't see he doesn't see the church or christianity or you know the jesus movement he doesn't see it as a direct threat to it but i think he does see it as an alternative to it and I think the Christians are trying to create a society within another society. And that, that's what I think stands out for Luke's view of the empire. It's not wholly, it's not wholly positive. It's certainly not positive, but I, I, I can't call it just purely negative either. It's, it's a far more complex negotiation that I think Luke is making between church and empire. Yeah. Was Luke writing an apology for Jesus and the church to Rome or an apology for Rome to the church? Yeah, well, some people have suggested a bit of both, you know, you know, I mean, I mean, if you read Acts in particular, I think Acts, there is a kind of an apologetic um, track to it, you know, I mean, I think it's interesting that Luke provides three accounts of Paul's conversion story. You know, you've got the actual event itself he narrates in, in Acts 9, and then, you know, in subsequent chapters, Luke gives his testimony twice. And, you know, you've only, you've only got finite manus manuscript space. So the fact that Luke provides three versions of Paul's testimony shows he really wants to stress that Paul was called by God, you know, through Christ, to go to the Gentiles. This is a movement of God. Okay, that's what Luke is really emphasizing and he accents that in the case of Paul. So I think he is trying to defend Christianity in general, Paul in particular, maybe against you know, to, to Greco-Roman officials, but more likely maybe it's towards other Christians within this broad Jesus movement who, who maybe they're a little bit suspicious of, of Paul. Uh, so I think, I think there's a whole bunch of purposes, you know, going on um, for why Luke wrote his two-volume work. But I think part of it is he's trying to exonerate someone for something, but it's hard to directly see. But I think he's definitely trying to exonerate Paul from charges that he's, you know, a bit of a maverick who who you know, plays by his own rules. I think he's trying to say that the, the, the inclusion of Gentiles in the church is part of the plan and purpose of God, and Paul was a key agent in that, and this is a work of God. Now, who, who that message is meant for, it's a little bit harder to say, but I think that's what Luke is getting at. Why does the book of Acts end when it does? I mean, it kind of ends mid-story. Yeah, you feel like that uh, to us. Like it, it kind of ends on a bit of a dour note, to be honest. You know, and it's a weird ending. And, you know, did he run out of manuscript space? Did, did he run out of manuscript space? And Rome believed. It's kind of sad. <laughs> I mean, I, I like to think he was planning to write Acts twenty nine. Uh, maybe, 
maybe that would have been good. Uh, or he was planning a third volume uh, or something like that. Uh, but at, look, at the end of the day, I think Luke is explaining how we got from Nazareth to Rome. You know, how did how did we go from you know a little a little stable in Bethlehem? You know, well, you know wherever it was in Bethlehem. How do we get from Bethlehem to the epicenter of the Roman Empire? How did we get from A to B? And once Paul in particular arrives in Rome, I mean, you kind of got the story of, of how Christianity came, you know, it may well have become before Paul got there, but he's telling the story how you go from, you know, this little backwater place in Judea all the way back, all the way into, you know, the very the very seat of, 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 um, of Rome's own empire. I think that you know, for us, that might be a weird thing. You know, we want more of a, you know, a more dramatic ending and a, a sense of resolution. But in terms of, you know, how we got to where we are, I think by the end of, by the end of Acts, you've, you've kind of figured that part out. Yes, we end in Rome, don't we? The seat of power. It makes sense. What's Luke's eschatology? What's Luke's view of the, of the last things? Yeah, well, I mean, some people have argued that Luke wrote his uh, two-volume work to compensate for hopes that have been delayed or waylaid. Or people thought, I, mean, I thought Jesus was coming back rather soon. And... He doesn't seem to be back yet. I'm starting to think he may not be back for a while. So what do we do in the interim? And Luke says, well, I've got a few ideas I'll share with you. Uh, maybe we could have some mission, you know, you, know, you have some Pentecostal spirituality you know, or something like that. Um, that was one view. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think Luke's doing that. I think the, I mean, you know, what Christian, Christians were waiting for and, and the timetables they had, that's a very complex question. But I think Luke was driven by that um i think he's got a very strong belief that that in jesus god has come near and he's come particularly near uh for the purpose of bringing to fulfillment all those great promises to israel and to bring gentiles into the family of abraham via the messiah i, th I think that's his overarching and that is that is the realization of a great promise. So that is kind of an eschatology in itself. You know, eschatology means the the study of final things. So I think that's what Luke is about. It's it's about salvation has dawned, appeared, being manifested in that the in the in the coming of God in the coming of Jesus. And that is the first installment, the first major installment of what still awaits a future consummation. Well, there we are, Michael Bird, uh, the author of this new IVP America book called A Bird's Eye View of Luke and X. Michael Bird from uh, Ridley College, academic dean and lecturer in New Testament at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. How could we forget that he was a good Aussie? Michael, thank you so much for your time and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and to take care of things behind the scenes. Michael, thank you so much. Brent, I pleasure to talk to you and to be with your listeners. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.